0: professor and James L. Cruzmark Chair-in-Law at the University of Minnesota School of Law. will be discussing her recent article, Me Too and the Convergence of CSR and Profit Maximization, which was recently published in the Case Western Reserve Law Review. I'll add a link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Claire, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Anybody who has kept up with the news over the last few years is aware of the Me Too movement. Uh, folks who come from a legal background are probably thinking about some of the legal implications that it's had. As an initial matter for this conversation, what impact has that movement had on the law writ large, whether in the eyes of the public, whether it's in the eyes of employers and, and, and employees, uh, or the, the legal academy or the courts?
1: Well, certainly there's an awful lot of attention that's being paid to it in the public, in the workplace, in the academy, and areas of this sort have always been very big topics in the academy, but that's clearly getting broader. After all, I am a business law scholar and I've written now on Me Too. In terms of changes to the law more broadly, maybe fewer of them than you might think, but one thing that is interesting in my area is shareholder proposals relating to sexual harassment. That's part of a broader trend of social proposals being more prominent part of shareholder activism, even among people who aren't traditionally social proposal proponents, such as institutional investors. Even though you don't see big percentages of shareholders voting for these things, to put it mildly, just having them out there as topics for shareholder attention in shareholder proposals is going to have some effect. One reason I think that there's so much more attention paid to Me Too besides these visceral things that have happened is that Me Too serves to unify a lot of disparate things, some worse than others, some more in the personal sphere, and some more in the professional sphere, After all, it's called Me Too, and what does Me Too mean? It means it happened to Me Too. But then the question is, what's the referent of it? What is the it that happened? And that's where you get to some significant breadth. That amplifies the message on the one hand, but also potentially, in my view, complicates it a bit given the disparity of things that come under the umbrella.
0: Could you situate Me Too in... The ongoing debate around CSR and the shareholder versus stakeholder constituency debate. This week, we saw the Business Roundtable release its own views, and and it's within the academy, I think. That's been met with some cynicism, but could you situate where Me Too might fit into that ongoing debate?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, where you mentioned the business roundtable, I would also add a reference to Larry Fink's letter to CEOs, which is clearly very much of a piece. And all of this, I think, reflects an increasing sense that even people in the business world are seeing that trying to separate profit maximization from what it takes to be a good citizen isn't ultimately viable or acceptable. I mean, if the law were perfect, we'd have far less of an issue, maybe even no issue. That is, the company would have to take social consequences into account because they'd be fined if they didn't, in an amount equal to the harm they cause. So even companies, for instance, that don't care about polluting, won't pollute if the law gets the penalties and enforcement right. The law effectively ensures in that scenario that pollution isn't profit-maximizing. The problem is that the law is far from perfect, and even if it were perfect, there are things that may be desirable for companies not to do that the law should not be getting involved in. For instance, things perhaps relating to the environment, perhaps relating to employees, Maybe, for instance, it's profit maximizing for a company, knowing that lots of people want jobs and they don't have such great credentials or such great options to offer what's called just-in-time employment, where people basically are tapped to be available at the last minute if the company needs them. Let's say there's a big snowstorm and the coffee shop figures, oh, gee, nobody's going to come to the coffee shop because they won't be able to get there, and so they call the employees and say, you know what, stay home, when the employees were really counting on that paycheck should the law be saying well employers have to not do just-in-time staffing well that's a hard question and the law has grappled with it but maybe the society has a different answer And including institutional shareholders, they may want to push for a broader vision of how people should get treated in an employment setting. It's a debate worth having, and again, it may go beyond what law requires, and it would be such a context of taking stakeholder interests into account, which the society may want to push companies to do.
0: You mentioned profit maximization, and and a key point of this piece is that even if firms are very much on the the shareholder value, the profit maximization value side of the debate, that they should still take Me Too and maybe upstream issues like a toxic workplace culture or workplace culture generally seriously. uh, Why is that?
1: Well, the short answer is it might affect their reputations and results. How much their reputations themselves affect their results is something we can't know. There's many possible ways it could. Maybe their customers like them less and move on. The employers may be readier to quit, less motivated to work hard. The company might have trouble attracting employees. They might have uh, regulatory attention they really don't like when regulators feel like they're going to be rewarded if they come after them or punish them if they don't. People might be less inclined to cut the firm slack for missteps and mishaps. There have been lots of efforts to analyze and quantify these effects, and it's not an easy task, not surprisingly. We probably won't know exactly how much or how big these effects are. Attempts to calibrate it too finely probably are going to blow up in any event. Since it's really not a good look to say, well, you know, Smith likes to make some crude suggestions and worse to women, but he's a great executive. Uh, our costs associated with Smith with lawsuits and customer losses are maybe a hundred thousand a year. but hey, he's making us five hundred thousand a year. You're caught doing that. It's really not a good look. But the toxic culture piece isn't just about reputation. If you have a culture that, for instance, likes to make crass jokes about women, make them uncomfortable, there's some sense that that could be linked to behavior that could otherwise come back and hurt the firm. Besides bad publicity and vulnerability to lawsuits it might be associated with risk-taking generally a certain kind of cavalier, less-than-empathetic attitude and other ways of playing fast and loose. If you have a culture that tolerates outrageous behavior of the kind we've heard about, thanks to Me Too, I think we can expect a lot of carryover effects that are going to increase vulnerability to financial and legal risks. My book with Richard Painter on banks and banking, if I may be permitted to plug it, talks a lot about this.
0: In a way, there's. I think that's a a good point about if we're taking a lot of risks in one area, uh, in, in including HR, that does say something about our, our risk taking in other areas too. And there's also the piece that if we are creating a, a culture that tends to drive people away, uh, whether they're prospective folks or they're they're already in the house, then that calculus of Well, so-and-so engages in sexual harassment, but he's a great executive and brings in a lot of revenue. And we just make that crass calculation of, uh, well, the the settlements we have to pay because of his conduct are less than uh, the profits he he drives for us. Might be missing a lot of of numbers uh, because it doesn't fully account for what we might be losing as an organization as a result of of so-and-so's behavior.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would mostly respond to that kind of ditto. That is, the chance that somebody is doing some very bad thing in the Me Too rubric and is otherwise exemplary in every particular strikes me as vanishingly small. People who are happy making people uncomfortable, who don't see women or other people as full people, who are cavalier about certain kinds of legal risks, who have certain senses of entitlement, and so on, again, are not apt to keep that behavior confined to some particular and very narrow sphere, they're probably doing it in other contexts too. In those other contexts, at least will have reputational costs when the behavior is discovered, assuming it is discovered, and legal and financial type risks potentially as well.
0: What might be the, the downside from a profit maximization standpoint of keeping the star performer who engages in this type of thing? And what might a profit maximizing uh, approach be to how to how to deal with that that person and, and that issue.
1: Yeah, I mean I think again we're sort of in in uh, Ditto territory here. That is let's say there's even some tangible thing that one can note that the person does very well or some tangible way to quantify some benefit they bring. There's all sorts of costs. And one doesn't know if they can continue to bring those benefits. Clearly, it became impossible for Harvey Weinstein to continue to bring Mm -hmm. whatever benefits he'd brought to the Weinstein company once his behavior became sufficiently known. So the benefits may or may not continue to be available. And the costs, A, in real time may be bigger than is appreciated. And B, may blow up such that the expected cost computation may turn out to be quite negative.
0: I think that one of the the things that the experience of the last two years or so has shown is that the star performer, the exceptional performer, the the special executive or, or team member may not in fact be all that that special. Uh, we we've seen a number of, of CEOs of, of large companies be replaced or host of of TV shows be replaced. And and those institutions, for the most part, have continued to operate and continue to to prosper. And and new CEOs and and new TV show hosts have been brought in. And really, there hasn't been that much of a a loss to the company. And so it might be that the, the star performer may not be all that special, uh, which might hearten companies to to do the right thing as they're both thinking about the the legal and and reputational risks and and also the, the profit maximization motivation that they might have.
1: Well, another sort of side interest of mine, not directly implicated in this project, but something I've thought about a lot before is how people take the signals of what they want in an employee and think that those signals tell a lot more than they actually do. There's a lot of work done about this in the context of CEOs, the idea of somebody who looks assertive and and decisive, and what that might mean is they look like they're willing and happy and able to fire a lot of people or to make hard decisions or something, and so you conclude, well, that's what I want. On what basis do people really have to decide who ought to get promoted and not? It's not like a math test where you can actually tell who's doing extraordinarily well and who isn't. There's all sorts of embedded assumptions as to what one thinks that employees of certain sorts who get certain sorts of jobs should look like and how much we actually know about who's bringing what value and what they're doing. I think is very, very complicated. And I think we've seen increasingly, especially as the star people are needed to be gotten rid of because of their behavior. I think we're seeing the extent to which lack of knowledge on this front is really much more pervasive than we might have thought.
0: Is this a, a static issue or a risk? Or do you, do you see legal risk uh, or other concerns uh, around this issue increasing over time for the same conduct? And I, I know in the piece you, you mentioned that um, and, and we're all familiar that some behavior that was tolerated in the past, even you know a few years ago, is now viewed quite differently. Maybe it wasn't seen as appropriate in the past, but uh, it was sort of uh, an open secret or, or tolerated.
1: Well, when I was a young associate, I remember a client had me come to his hotel. We had a meeting in the lobby, and then he suggested that perhaps a nightcap in his room might be in order. That, at that time, nobody re- – I mean, we all just said no and laughed. But I think it would be a bigger deal now. So I can certainly attest personally to the fact of how much standards have changed. I think as a general matter, there's sort of a one-way ratchet in these sorts of things, as in people just get more sensitive rather than less sensitive. You don't say, oh, you know, uh, this stuff seemed to me, you know, a big deal at the time, but now I think it's nothing. It tends to go the other way with respect to these sorts of things. And also the trajectories accumulate because you get more and more stories of more and more outrages. And then they all, as I say, accumulate into one kind of big mass of, oh, all sorts of really bad stuff is going on. I would say, you know, as to the specific question of uh, risks increasing, Much of the action, I think, is going to be reputational rather than legal, not for all of this stuff, not for the more egregious stuff, but for a fair amount of it. But to some extent, as between reputational and legal, they can blur together. And let me give you an example, which is to say that a company that gets into Me Too kind of trouble might get a Caremark derivative suit. Now, the suit was probably going to be a loser, but still, it costs time to defend. It has an effect. There's briefs out there. There's publicity out there. So even insofar as there's no real change in the law, such that having Me Too problems does not, in many, perhaps most cases, potentially lead to Caremark liability, there still is a sense that more people are going to bring Caremark-type suits alleging that just because it's sort of more out there and it's more something that one can take the position while well, the board should have known, prevented this stuff from going on. And there are, of course, possibilities that they really – uh, that the behavior is sufficiently bad that the board sweeping it under the rug, if they did that, or knowledge or something like that, could actually rise to the level of something that could proceed in a care mark suit.
0: Right. I i don't believe the, the Weinstein company was, was a public company, but if it had been, you can certainly imagine a derivative suit against directors in, in that case. Yeah, we- yeah,
1: Weinstein, with some of the stuff that's in his employment agreement, Weinstein would have been a very hard right. case, I think in this context.
0: And, you know, it's not just the reputational concern of of the firm. There's uh, lots of literature about directors' personal reputational concerns there too. Uh, Yes. And so they they may not actually be liable for a breach, uh, but still there's the personal reputational cost, and nobody likes to sit for depositions if, if he or she can avoid it.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually writing a paper right now about the extent to which a law firm trying to help directors' concerns about their own reputations above and beyond their concern for their corporation might actually count as an agency cost, but sort of an agency cost by which we want to say the lawyer is maybe being a bad agent, but a good citizen. And it's an interesting thing to think about because intuitively, we certainly would want to say that we would want the lawyers to um, be solicitous to concerns of this sort. On the other hand, They are being hired by the corporation. And if a director's personal interest in their reputation has the lawyer advising a more conservative stance, at least as a matter of theory, we get into this kind of funny potential bad agency situation. It's just an interesting thing to think about. And I'm, as I say, writing a paper, which will be out in a bunch of months, that will explore this uh, bad agent, good citizen Possible permutation.
0: Oh, that, that sounds interesting, and I'll, I'll keep a, an eye out uh, for that. Uh, what does the Me Too movement teach about broader ideas or concerns within the CSR ESG spaces and the the debates and conversations that are happening in that area?
1: Yeah. Well, first. The, the good news good citizenship i think is increasingly a unified concept that separating from what profit requires from being from what being a good citizen requires is becoming harder and that a pure instrumental take where the company decides okay law doesn't require this but here's this reputational payoff of 50 bucks and therefore i will spend 50 bucks to do this is just not going to be that viable but i do want to sound a certain cautionary note It's not as though everything that anyone ever claims is necessary or advisable to be a good citizen automatically should get a seat at the table. One issue I'd like to see better explored is how to make sure that pressure on companies isn't just a function of the kind of issue du jour type thing, but is as rigorously well considered as it can be. In this kind of soft sphere, it's easy to point to some sympathetic issue and make the case that throwing resources at it is what good citizens, including businesses, should do. I think the issue is much more complicated, and I'd like to see a lot more attention paid to it.
0: Claire, what takeaways would you offer for academic listeners or others for this conversation? And and what open questions do you see on the research front?
1: Okay, well, the main key takeaway that I see is, Again, the increasing convergence between profit maximization and things in the CSR ESG family, it's not complete convergence. There's still going to be some hard cases. I myself think that drug production is going to be one of them, which is it has a public component as a private component it excites a lot of very strong sentiments. The company, for profit maximization purposes, may be cutting back on its cancer research. People might go nuts, but the company needs to make money. I think there's some areas where we're going to really have tension in the convergence respect, but I think in many other respects, The force of reputation, the force of the shareholder proposals, the force of institutional investor pressure is going to yield a convergence such that we're going to see a penumbra around what law requires to include what reputation requires, and that's going to be the profit maximizing approach where profit maximization is more broadly construed, as I think it will need to be. And again, one of the big pieces here is big and institutional investors getting into the action. Some people talk about, do they mean it? Do they not mean it? Who knows? I don't know what's in their head. I don't know if they mean it or not, but the attention itself is attention. And there are clearly many people involved in this debate who do mean it. So I feel pretty optimistic that there's going to be a light that's more Shine, shone, whatever the past tense is, onto practices that really seem a bit abusive and to try to get companies to take seriously again that they are citizens and not just out to make as much money as possible. Okay, though, that being said, and that gets me to open questions, this first point is the kind of anti-corporate, they're trying to get the last nickel kind of point. But as I was just saying, I think there's a real risk in, I mean, some people use the term virtue signaling, and I use the term cheap sentiment. It's very easy to find sort of wrongs and say, ah, they should be fixed, and companies should do it. But One big advantage with profit maximization was it was unsentimental and it had, in theory, one metric and one dimension. Profit is good. More profit is better than less profit. Now, there's so many good things once you get to the social realm and the forces that dictate which ones are attended to aren't necessarily the ones that are the best forces. That is, maybe it's the loudest ones, the ones that are very good at getting attention other than those rather than those that arguably really should get attention. Now which ones should get attention? That's something I've written about a lot and nobody knows the answer to that. It's something that people have strong intuitions about, but I think it's probably pretty uncontroversial to say that you get these fads, these sort of Issues du jour as I was calling them before, where people say, Oh, the company, you know, doesn't use GMOs and that's therefore a good thing or something like this, when the science on GMOs suggests there's nothing wrong at all. So again, we have to be very careful when we're trying to do things for good guyish reasons, that it's really the right set of stuff, or at least not ostentatiously the wrong set of stuff. The final point that I want to make is just an area of research that happens to interest me a great deal that I see in the management literature, but I don't see integrated into these CSR, ESG type discussions, which is to say the composition of the workforce as far as personality types is concerned. It's something I came to think about an awful lot when I was doing the banker book, because what we could see was sort of a trajectory from there being banks dominated by people who, as was said, hate to lose and shifting over more to a credo of people who love to win. The former being maybe the compliance people and the mm-hmm. latter people being maybe the traders. And as I've delved into this, and again, looked at the management literature, the psychological literature, there's a lot of interesting distinctions among people, levels of competitiveness versus levels of caution, levels of empathy, levels of risk-loving, and different relationships to risk. Some people like risk because they think it's fun. Other people like it as a means to an end. And what I think is that if you could get this aspect of things right, That is, you don't want a firm full of compliance people, but you don't want a firm full of myopic traders who say, ah, bingo, I won, nothing else matters. If you could get that balance right, I think a lot of these problems would be much, much easier.
0: Our guest today has been Claire Hill, professor in James L. Cruz, Mark Law at the University of Minnesota School of Law. We've discussed her recent piece, Me Too and the Convergence of CSR and Profit Maximization, which was recently published in the Case Western Reserve Law Review. I'll add a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Claire, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.